0: There's a saying that sometimes it's more important for the law to be certain than to be right. I think we definitively need to know, especially for the Republican voters now voting in primaries, they deserve to know, is the person they're voting for actually eligible to hold office? Or is there going to be this huge fight where maybe he's not going to be allowed to serve after the election's already taken place?
1: You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Today we are talking about the recent case of Trump v. Anderson, which is the case regarding whether former President Trump will be disqualified from the ballot for participating in an insurrection. We have with us today two leading scholars of election law. I will give a brief introduction. They deserve much longer, but with us today is, is Rick Hassan, who is a professor of law at UCLA. He uh, studied actually at UCLA, both to get his PhD and a and, uh, law degree. So it's a, it's a homecoming for him to return to the, the institution where he studied before, previously been also uh, at Loyola and Irvine. He also runs the election law blog, and is the author of many articles and books, including one which is forthcoming within days, and that is A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. Derek Muller is a professor of law at the, the University of Notre Dame. He also studied at University of Notre Dame, so another another homecoming, but had previously been a, a law professor at Pepperdine and University of Iowa. He is the author of many articles as well, and especially on questions of ballot access and the Electoral College. So we're gonna jump right in today. First, I think we're gonna wanna put some facts about uh, this case on the table. So Don, do you wanna start with the first question?
2: Sure, I'll start with uh, you, Professor uh, Hassan. Let's talk a little bit about trump v. Anderson where the Supreme Court heard arguments and there doesn't seem to be a lot of precedent or any precedent in this case. The petitioners, the Trump team, were highlighting the Griffiths case. Could you talk a little bit, and pointing him in that direction, but could you talk a little bit about what the constitutional provisions are in this case that our, our listeners should be aware of?
0: Sure. So just to set the stage a little bit, there are different qualifications in the Constitution for running for different federal offices. And for president, you know, there's, as I think a lot of people know, you have to be at least 35 years old, and you have to be a natural-born citizen, and have to have been a certain number of years a resident of the United States. When Congress... Um, passed the 14th Amendment and the states ratified it, it added another qualification, or in this case, a disqualification. It says that when someone engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to the enemy, having previously taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, I'm paraphrasing here, then they are uh, disqualified from serving. And that that disqualification can be lifted by Congress by a two-thirds vote. It's a very complicated provision. You're right that we don't have a lot of modern experience with it because this was a provision written after the Civil War to deal with Confederates. And, the, you know, there were a number of people who had been U.S. government officials or, or, or state or local officials, went to work for the Confederacy. And then the question was, could they run again for Congress or could they run again for their dog catcher roles? And so this is a case where around the country there have been some people who've been suing election officials and, and trying to get... Donald Trump removed from the ballot on grounds that he's disqualified based on, among other things, his encouragement of the January 6th riots and raises legal questions. Is the president covered? Is the presidency covered? It raises factual questions. Did Trump, what Trump did, count as engaging in insurrection? It raises procedural questions. Who decides this? What's the standard of proof? And it's just a mess because We don't have answers to any of these things. We're on a really tight time frame. There were a number of cases where the courts had, or or local election administrators and state election administrators had rejected the idea of taking Trump off the ballot. But the Colorado Supreme Court ordered him off the ballot. That was enough to trigger this expedited Supreme Court review that led to a recent oral argument where Colorado and the voters who were challenging Trump and Trump's lawyers were all in the Supreme Court arguing over how and if this provision might apply to Trump.
1: And, Derek, Rick filled in some of those details, but if you want to say a little bit about how the case got to the court and especially the role of secretaries of state courts uh, and others and why why we're in the Supreme Court now, uh, as opposed to some other forum
3: where we were earlier. There have been a number of these challenges filed around the United States. There were a couple of test challenges, really, in 2022 with a couple of members of Congress. But things really accelerated in 2023. Trump announced he was running for president in November of 2022, a very long window of running for president. And uh, as these challenges were filed, you know, some were being filed in federal court. And, and those cases were being thrown out very quickly because federal courts require people suing to have standing, which says they have to have a particularized injury very commonly, if you're saying this candidate is ineligible to run, we describe that as a generalized grievance. And so everyone shares it in common and you don't have something specific or injurious to you. So we're not going to hear your case. And so the federal courts have not been a fertile ground for these kinds of challenges. But many states have their own rules and state courts that allow any voter to file challenges if they think a candidate is ineligible or if they think a secretary of state is about to violate the law, such as listing a candidate who's uneligible. And so we started to see some of these uh, lawsuits crop up in states like Minnesota and Michigan. Um, And in those states, they were thrown out to say, well, I mean, this is a primary election, and our state law doesn't let us hear this complaint at this time, at the very least, and, and we'll reserve judgment on whether or not we can hear these complaints in the general election. But in Colorado, they sort of hit the procedural jackpot, if you will, by filing uh, in a jurisdiction where the district court concluded that state law authorized this kind of challenge, authorized them to have jurisdiction and to hear these issues, and then proceeded to evaluate it at a five-day hearing, followed by some oral argument and then a decision within 48 hours, uh, which is what was required under state law for those things. So it came out of this group of voters who filed just a general contest in the state courts of Colorado. That was appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, which decided by a 4-3 sort of divided vote that, that Trump's name should not be on the ballot. And then we're, we're up in front of the Supreme Court as a result of that that one state's decision.
1: We also do have, I think, in a case in Maine. It's not actually directly before the court, but the, the Maine Secretary of State has also made a decision in that same direction and potentially other states would as well. So let me ask. Bo- both of you submitted uh, amicus briefs for, the, for this case. Uh, Rick, with with Ned Foley of Ohio State and Ben Ginsburg, the former public election lawyer, and Derek also as well. And I, I will note that Rick's amicus was cited by the uh, I think respondents' counsel in, in the oral argument, so that was uh, nice to hear. But I'd like to hear from both of you, you know, what the key points you were trying to get before the court. And and I will note that neither of you really were on particularly on one side or the other, but you were trying to uh, illuminate issues that were important to the court. So maybe, Rick, we could start with you. What, what are the key points that you were trying to get across in the amicus brief you did with uh, Foley and Ginsburg?
0: Yeah, it was kind of a strange bedfellows brief. Ben and I, we like each other a lot, but we disagree a lot uh, on substance. Uh, Ned and I agree sometimes, disagree sometimes. We're like kind of across the political spectrum. And as you said, this is a brief filed supporting neither side, But making the pitch that the Supreme Court needs to decide this on the merits. And the easiest way for me to explain this is just to give you a scenario. And the scenario is this. The Supreme Court decides this case in a way that doesn't determine whether uh, Donald Trump is disqualified or not. Maybe they say it's a primary election or they say that Congress has to pass some legislation or they say something else. And come January 6, 2025, it's Trump versus Biden, too. Trump appears to win in the Electoral College, and the time has come to count the Electoral College votes, and Democrats control both houses of Congress. This may or may not happen. It's certainly possible. And Democrats say, you know, we can't count these votes for Donald Trump. These votes were for an ineligible candidate. Enough people object, and Donald Trump is not going to be chosen as president. Then you'd have, you know, the opposition party essentially blocking the person who was chosen through the the normal process to be president. We think that's a recipe for chaos and for potential violence. As noted earlier, there's so many open questions here about how this is supposed to apply that you know you can let your value judgments get in the way of how you view the meaning of all of these things. I'm not always a believer that it's best for the justices to decide questions of election law. Often, I think they should be left to the political process. I think I thought that in 2000, back in Bush versus Gore. But here, I think there's a saying that sometimes it's more important for the law to be certain than to be right. I think we definitively need to know, especially for the Republican voters now voting in primaries, they deserve to know. Is the person they're voting for actually eligible to hold office? Or is there going to be this huge fight where maybe he's not going to be allowed to serve after the election's already taken place? And so our brief is telling the Supreme Court, don't duck. We know that you might get a nice unanimous opinion to punt, as the court did. You may remember back in the 2000 election before Bush versus Gore, there was another case called Bush versus Palm Beach County Canvassing Board. Um, Or was that Palm Beach County Canvassing Board versus Harris? I forget the name by the time it got to the Supreme Court. And punting there maybe made some sense, but it doesn't here. After oral argument, I'm not uh, thinking that they're going to follow our advice, but we put it out there so at least now they know what the risks are. And
1: just as a little bit of a follow-up, when you say you want it decided on the merits, that, that could mean the number of... You want clarity. So, so one, one way of thinking of the merits would be that the court somehow is going to rule and say, Donald Trump did participate in insurrection, or he didn't, and maybe they're, they're the final word. But are there some other, would you say, more procedural things that sort of close doors as well that, that would fit into your category of being certain? Let's take, for example, this, this one theory that some have Perhaps the president is not covered by Section 3. That would be clear, but may- maybe not what you'd prefer. But is that, what, what types of things would fall into the clearly decided category? Which things would leave it murky enough for you that you'd, you'd worry about it?
0: Sure. There are two related textual arguments on the merits. I don't think much of them at all. One is that when Donald Tr- Trump took the the oath, That didn't apply to someone who was a president. I'm not going to get into the details of why this is. It's very technical and complicated. The other is that the presidency is not an office that's covered by this. Uh, I wrote a piece in Slate last week saying Judge Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson seemed to be interested in this argument. I don't think it's a very strong argument, but it's a great off-ramp. Better than the court saying this is a non-justiciable political question. We'll let Congress decide it if and when. Another possible off-ramp would be to say he's disqualified and then... Some states may do some things to try to keep him on the ballot, but I I think that it would be likely he wouldn't be the Republican nominee for president. Another thing is they could say that Congress has to pass a statute, and this is the only way that there could be disqualification. This, I think, is my leading guess right now as to what they're going to do, because there was this concern expressed at the oral argument that you can't have one state deciding this for the whole country. So Congress needs to provide some parameters on how this is going to go. If they could write it in a way that would exclude doing this on January 6th, but only doing it in advance or something, that's a possibility. We're all kind of flying by the seat of our pants here. There's not a lot of law. And so, I, you know, I, I have much less of a sense than I normally do in these election law cases where there's kind of a history of how these things have been read and precedents to look at. So I, I just don't know what they're going to do, but there are a number of ways that would avoid this potential for a clash, some of which would get rid of Trump and some of which would confirm that he can stay on the ballot.
2: Rick, uh, when you look at the arguments that were, were had, do you feel that they're going to be unanimous in your agreement or do you think it will be split? You know, if you have an easy off ramp, it's possible. Uh, You may have all nine votes. Or do you think it's going to be a contentious 5-4 decision?
0: Well, I actually think, ironically, that a completely unrelated case could affect this. As we're recording, uh, Donald Trump has just filed a petition, emergency petition, to try to stop his election subversion trial from happening on grounds that he's immune from criminal liability. The D.C. Circuit had rejected that argument. So now we're in a situation where the Supreme Court's going to decide upon the timing. I wrote a recent piece saying that we could see a kind of implicit bargain. Maybe the court unanimously or ne- nearly unanimously says one way or the other, Donald Trump staying on the ballot, and also says he's going to trial. Uh, so that could happen. From my sense of oral argument, Justices Kagan and uh, Jackson, who are the two two of the three more liberal justices on the court, did seem to be siding with Trump in the disqualification case. Only Justice so- Sonia Sotomayor was hard to read. I could easily see a unanimous or nearly unanimous opinion here, and perhaps— also deciding to let the Trump case go to trial. And always they could revisit the issue. If Trump is convicted, they could always come back to the immunity question afterwards.
2: So Professor uh, Mueller, in your ambicus brief, could you talk about the key points to that? I, I did note that you, you did look at the qualification issues and, and the like. So could you talk about that?
3: yeah so i'd filed some of these briefs in some of the state court proceedings and so i had more to say about state law then and there's less the supreme court is interested when it comes to matters of state law than federal law so i stuck with a couple of high level points which is first that that states do have the power i think to judge qualifications of candidates at least in some degree or to some manner Um, they have kept 21 year olds 27 year olds Guyanan citizens nicaraguan nationals off the ballot over the last 50 years. And if you trace that, that's pretty consistent with the fact that Article Two of the Constitution gives the legislature of each state pretty broad discretion in how they want to direct the manner of appointing presidential electors who in turn vote for the president of the United States. So I sort of trace this out as, as a pretty broad power, not precluded by the Constitution. And something that I think also, likewise, although it gets a little bit trickier, extends to presidential primaries. On the flip side, there's no obligation for states to do so, and pointing out that states can routinely let ineligible candidates appear on the ballot. That's a judgment call the state wants to make. It's up to its own voters to be informed about it, or they don't want to provide a mechanism to exclude an ineligible candidate. Um, you've had a long history of that happening as well. So I sort of highlight these two points so that the court doesn't veer in some direction of saying that states are somehow obligated to judge qualifications or that they have no authority to do so. But, you know, I flag some additional concerns for the court to think about. And some of these concerns were, were flagged at oral argument in varying degrees. Some questions about whether or not the presidential election is different in kind because it's a national election. And what happens in one state can have an effect in other states. And if that's the case, any one state's interest in how it governs its elections uh, is somewhat lower than how it might govern other kinds of elections. Another concern is the notion that if you're going to say Congress has power, doesn't have power, must do something, you know, Congress has different roles in this process. When we think about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But there are other powers it has too, as, as Rick's brief is concerned about, the, the notion that members of Congress might try to disqualify a candidate after the election. And the court needs to be very careful when it's articulating what the scope of congressional authority is, that it's not overstating the authority or leaving open gaps for future uh, election subversion or, or election crises to arise. So, um, so the brief just hits at some of these structural arguments, doesn't make any particular claims about Section 3, and in fact disclaims that at the front and says if Section 3 is different, Maybe, but uh, at a high level, at least, this is the scope of state power. And uh, the court did, though, seem to have a lot of things to think about when it came to how states administer presidential elections, at least with respect to Section 3 in particular.
1: So I want to follow up with you on a couple things. But first, just to note, you know, a lot of our audience is, is very interested in election administration. We certainly have election administrators, people who run elections. Don Palmer, I'm going to ask you to sort of step out of your role as co-host for a second and be a panelist here because you were uh, the chief election officer in Virginia and also had been the the election director in Florida. These ballot access questions came before you or your institution, at least, in the state. Can you just say a little something about some of the ways in which, from the perspective of somebody running elections, what this looks like?
2: Well, I I appreciated Derek's brief because it really uh, encapsulated how state election officials view this. I frankly saw it mostly as ministerial because there's always going to be ballots excess appeals and the judiciary is gonna get involved often. And so we did have an issue in the Commonwealth of Virginia in 2012 during the presidential primary. We had a number of Republicans that were knocked off because there was a lack of petition signatures across the Commonwealth because of a pretty big fraud issue that had been uncovered by the attorney general and others. And so we we made the administerial decision based on that. There was, when you think back, there was some facts and an appeal process. And of course, then they were able to go to federal court for relief. In the end, they sided with us on latches because it was so late in the process. And frankly, because of the impact on the election process that late in, you know, as we uh, veered toward uh, the presidential primary. But that was really sort of my experience with that as I think about this case on how election officials would handle the qualifications of a presidential candidate. So
1: maybe I can use that as a jumping off point to to follow up with Derek. You flagged this issue, but there is a qualifications clause in the constitution, but this is another part of the constitution. And yet the question of whether you've participated in an insurrection uh, is a qualification of sorts. How is it similar? And how is it different from the the more garden variety ways? Uh, And you know, both, well, i'm I'm particularly interested in some ways in which the argument went. Some of these things seem much more factual, much more permanent. they don't they're not going to change over time, and some of them you know perhaps can. So, so what's the difference between this type of qualification and, and others?
3: So far, when we're dealing with these questions of eligibility, um, there have been almost no questions of fact so far. We know how old you are, 21 or 27 or something like that. Um, we know where you're born. You know, Ted Cruz was born in Canada to an, a Cuban father and an American mother, and there were challenges to his eligibility. Probably the only exception was Barack Obama, where uh, a few people did not believe he was actually born in Hawaii. Uh, so if we want to cite that as a, a precedent, which we might not want to do for other reasons, but uh, for the most part, the questions were of law, uh, things like, what is a natural-born citizen, right? So this case and these these insurrection cases are deeply contested factual cases. Not only the facts about what happened, what's the state of mind, what kind of speech was there, what was the inaction, all those kinds of issues arose. So that is a different posture than how most of these other ones arose. And in fact, in many of them, the facts are all stipulated. There's really nothing to dispute or investigate when we're dealing with other qualifications. Additionally, with Section Three, it's a disqualification that Congress can lift by a two-thirds vote. That also makes it strange. Congress can't just change the age requirement for president. Congress has changed some of the citizenship rules, but we don't think those can apply retroactively. We ask when whether or not you're a natural-born citizen at birth. Um, so it's also a, an alterable qualification, which puts it in a different camp. And again, you can see some of the arguments to suggest, well, this is maybe why the presidency is or isn't covered or things like that. But sort of setting those aside, it, it just functions very differently as a, as a qualification. And I think to the extent that Article Two's power of legislatures controlling the ballot and... Judging qualifications on age or natural-born citizen status, um, it feels different in kind in Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. I think you saw several justices at oral arguments struggling with how this provision, again enacted eighty years later, uh, how it relates to the sort of exercise of power that that states might be using with the qualifications clause and that provision of the Constitution.
2: Professor Mueller, just one follow-up: in your amicus brief, you talked a bit about your advice to the court regarding to. You know, avoiding a constitutional crisis. Could you talk a little bit of what your your advice to the court was to sort of avoid that situation?
3: Yeah. So, so mine is is maybe a version of the, of the one that Rick and others raised in their brief, which is to say, uh, if you're going to say that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment requires some kind of congressional action, that's its own issue— but there are other issues that arise. So if Congress is counting electoral votes on January 6, 2025, and it's exercising power under the 12th Amendment, the Electoral Count Reform Act, and wants to refuse to count votes, or if there's a disputed issue under the 20th Amendment, which says that if a president has failed to qualify, the vice president serves as the acting president. These are really tricky, problematic, and again, potentially crisis-inducing holdings from the court if it says these matters need to be left to Congress. So it was mostly setting some outer bounds to say, if Congress has some responsibility here, be careful in how you're articulating that responsibility and be aware that what you say might be picked up and used in some other context to say, aha, we have power now, and now we're going to throw out votes, or now we're going to disqualify the president or something like that. So it's just mostly a word of caution about how the court might proceed.
2: Yeah, we've had a chance to listen and uh, read the transcript but i I'd, I'd like to hear from you know uh, dr Mueller and and hazen about the uh, what their thoughts were on the oral argument and where do you think they're going rick you mentioned briefly um some of your thoughts but i'd like to give Derek an opportunity and then perhaps you can weigh in rick
3: yeah i so i think the court was mostly concerned about how one state could affect the national presidential election now States are the ones principally responsible for presidential elections. They are the ones that make a lot of decisions. Candidates don't appear on the ballot in every state. There's no question that these are sort of true statements about how presidential elections run. But Justice Kagan, uh, in particular, was citing about this worry that one state could really affect the national election, and that unless you had some pretty clear certain authority for the proposition that a state could step in and determine some candidate's eligibility under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Why does it make sense to say that that state should be able to do so and essentially force the Supreme Court's hand? And you saw a varying number of iterations on this argument. Chief Justice Roberts wondering how how Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is designed to constrain states somehow empowers states to judge qualifications like that. Justice Barrett wondered how one state's factual findings would be given deference on review, which is typically how appellate courts review what happens and how those evidentiary standards can vary from state to state. So I think there were a lot of sort of federalism-based concerns or pragmatic concerns or different ways of thinking about how Section 3 is not just a age restriction. And it's not just sort of an ordinary exercise of state power. Um, it's something that can have deeply national and, and potentially problematic uh, effects throughout the United States.
1: And just to follow up on that, uh, we have a clip uh, from, from Justice Kagan. Why don't I play that? And I think it illustrates uh, what, what Derek was mentioning.
3: But maybe put most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan, and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it?
1: So Rick, uh, why don't we turn to you and ask you your reactions to, uh, you react to that clip, but also more broadly to the, uh, to the oral argument.
0: My first reaction was to channel my inner Derek Muller and say, <laughs> doesn't Article 2 give each state uh, legislature set the manner for conducting the election? And so if he's disqualified in Colorado, it doesn't mean he's disqualified in Michigan. And you know, like back in 2000, there were 13 candidates on the ballot for president in Florida, but there weren't in every state. You know, it was different. So I mean, that's an, that, that obviously is not going to carry the day, but it just struck me as kind of an odd thing for them to latch on to. I was more taken by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Barrett talking about this kind of race to the bottom. You know, he, Roberts was talking about, you know, what if a state, I don't think he mentioned Texas, but I was thinking Texas, decided to disqualify Joe Biden on the grounds of what he's doing at the border is, uh, you know, fomenting insurrection or something. What's going to stop this tit for tat? And that, you know, really, you're trying to repurpose this, this civil war provision, in a, in, in a very polarized era. And we need to put a stop to it. Uh, so I, I haven't seen a single knowledgeable court commentator predict anything other than a win for Trump here. And just the disagreement is about how he's going to win, which could make a big difference in terms of what the post-election aftermath might look like. And just the
1: thinking out loud here, this worry about the states doing different things, is the answer to that probably some sort of giving the power to Congress to say something or assuming that The states don't have this power unless it's very clear and they've already they already don't have the authority to what's the off-ramp that gets the justices to a point where they can say well there aren't these 50 different decisions we're not going to open up
0: if they say that the president is not uh, an office that is covered by this that would be a way that would it would not apply to the presidency and so that would be done with it they could say that trump didn't take the oath as an officer of the United States, which I find like the most ridiculous, infuriating one, but that's a Donald Trump only one day ticket because everybody else was run for president since George Washington has taken an oath because they've held a lower office before. They could say uh, that it's uh, con- there has to be authorizing legislation from Congress. So there are a number of ways that they could reach that determination and take it out of the hands of individual states.
1: Derek, I wanted to hear what you have to say, but maybe on the officer question, which was briefed a lot, and is very technical. We don't need to get into all of the details, but what was your sense of how, how the court was was viewing this possibility of saying, this just doesn't apply to the president for whatever reason?
3: I, I think in terms of that officer, the United States point, Justice Jackson in particular seemed drawn to the argument. And again, Rick wrote about this recently, that if you're looking at, to borrow the phrase, the, the mischief that was being addressed by Section 3, The overwhelming concern of the framers of Section 3 was a concern that there would be pockets of Confederates taking over the apparatus of some portion of a state or some state in the South. As a result, the fact that the president is not listed among the offices in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment suggests that it was not really on the mind of the framers. And if it wasn't really on their mind, we have a historical narrative to tell on the side, which is it wasn't on their mind because they were worried about other things. And that's a good inference to draw that it was just not something they thought about. And if it's not something they thought about, then we shouldn't read into section three what that is. This has gotten some public scorn, I would say, in various circles, um, not a popular argument. Uh, but again, I think Justice Jackson was the most uh, drawn to this particular argument. And again, if you, if you take her historical narrative about what the concern was of the framers, it sort of fits together with the understanding about why the president would be left out. But there didn't seem to be a strong appetite on the court for that type of argument.
0: I should just point out that that argument, if you accept it, means that you can't be a dog catcher if you took an oath before and became an insurrection, but you could be president. Jefferson Davis, totally fine to be president of the United States. And it's just it's just ludicrous. But I'm all for it if it ends the litigation, even though I think it is a ridiculous argument. So
2: one follow-up question. You know, there was a little bit of discussion about the Insurrection Act and sort of like, you know, that's a criminal statute that you can be indicted and found guilty of after due process. Some discussion about was there adequate due process in Colorado. What's the standard of proof? What are your thoughts on that? You know, do you think the court will rest its ruling on that Congress has spoken with this and it's it's the criminal statute of the insurrection act.
3: Yeah, I, I mean I think this is a version of what Rick was raising with the self-executing point or whether or not Congress needs to enact legislation. One version of that, which is maybe more Rick's nightmare scenario, is if you know Congress needs to do something, throw up our hands and like leave it to Congress to solve this problem. There's a different and maybe narrower version, uh, and it goes something like this: Congress can't do something, and in fact, Congress has done something. It has passed statutes, including the Insurrection Act, you know, under the 2383, which uh, defines what an insurrection is, criminal statute. In the past, it has enacted quo warranto actions, which allow you to sue and remove an officer. Who is holding office in violation of Section Three? It did that in the in the late 19th century. It repealed the Quo Warranto actions, but it kept the Insurrection Act on the books. And the argument is that Congress has spoken. And this is how Congress wants to do it. And states can't do it on their own. Congress has given the roadmap, and this is the only way it can enforce it. If it wants to change it, that's great. But that's up to Congress to do. And it has to do so by sort of positive legislation. So that story has a a couple of problems. One is that the Insurrection Act was first enacted in 1862 before Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That was re-ratified in 1948, so you can maybe construct a story that Congress uh, passed the statute a little bit later. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wasn't sure why the Quo Ronto actions were repealed, although there's some contested legislative history floating around out there about why that happened. Um, But another is, when Congress passes this statute, does it understand that it's boxing out states from doing their own thing, that it has preempted what states are doing? It's not clear that that was what they were doing, a sort of a fiction you have to understand to think about how, well, on Congress's assumptions of governing law, it believed that states couldn't do anything else. And maybe that's true, and maybe that's attractive to the court. But I think that argument in particular, it had some play. It relates to some of the justices' concerns about why should one state be able to do this? It's one avenue the court might Go down to try to address some of these concerns, but there was some some play as thinking about the 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 role of Congress in these areas.
2: So, in your amicus brief, you were able to mention what potentially could occur if the court didn't act um, clearly, and in this case, also they talked about the the concern of one state disqualifying a candidate. Is it possible the court could push this back to the states where? all 50 states have the ability to do this. And let's say there are six or seven states that disqualify former President Trump. Is that still a possibility? And what are your thoughts about that? Is that really a realistic option? I don't think so. I think it just creates more of a mess. But what do you think?
3: Yeah, I don't think they want that kind of disuniformity. I think they uh, repeatedly, justices across the spectrum, express concern about the phrase the Colorado Secretary of State's attorney used was messiness of federalism, which is not something you want to say in front of the Supreme Court. The notion being, well, if states are doing different things, this court can sort them out. So I think there's going to be a strong press from the court not to just leave it to the states and to provide some more uniformity and guidance.
0: I mean, think about this point, that if they leave it to the states, then every time Donald Trump or Joe Biden is disqualified, there's going to be an appeal to the Supreme Court saying, I didn't get due process here or something else. And the last thing the Supreme Court wants to do is hear more election cases before the election.
1: Yeah, I don't think they were too excited to hear the possibility that maybe they should be in detail reviewing the trial record or maybe even holding a half trial of their own. And so so you could see
0: the uh, advocates kind of making these points and the court just groaning. It was about as exciting for Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, as when he presided over the impeachments. You know, like you could, I wasn't in the courtroom, but I could picture the face of uh, Chief Justice Roberts as I heard him speaking.
2: Uh, Rick, you mentioned this briefly uh, earlier in the podcast, but what are the other legal proceedings that are ongoing, and what could affect the election with relation to this case as well? And I think you you might have mentioned it, particularly the decision on the immunity question.
0: Well, first, there are other cases. The I think John mentioned the main case that's being held for this case. There will be other attempts. If and when Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, it's, this is going to start again in some places. So there's going to be more follow-on disqualification litigation unless we get some definitive rule from the Supreme Court. In addition, there's there are four criminal trials and two civil trials that I'm keeping an eye on, which I don't think exhaust all of the Donald Trump litigation. But there's the election subversion case. That's the one where Donald Trump has now filed a stay before the Supreme Court. is trying. He's trying to run out the clock so that he doesn't go on trial before the election. And we should know within a couple of weeks about what the Supreme Court thinks about the, at least the timetable for resolving that. I, I don't have a, a, a huge prediction here, other than that idea that the court might be looking for parody. And if you really want to throw it to the voters, if it's really anti-democratic to disqualify a candidate, give the voters maximum information by letting this case go to trial soon against Trump. There's also the classified documents case in Florida. This is in federal court as well. That one's on a slower track. They're fighting over access to classified documents. There's also the Georgia RICO case. Uh, There's now gonna be a hearing about the relationship between the Fulton County District Attorney and the special prosecutor she appointed. I never thought this had any chance in hell in going to trial before the election because it's a RICO case with 41 defendants. I mean, maybe now it's down to 36 because there have been some plea agreements, but that's not the kind of case that goes to trial quickly. And then there's a New York criminal case involving business fraud that ties in payments to someone that Trump was allegedly having an affair with. To me, that's a small potatoes case. And I think even if he's convicted, I don't think it's going to have a dent on anything. And then there's the Eugene Carroll civil case where he was found liable for $83 million in compensatory and punitive damages that's going up on appeal. And then there's the civil action against Trump and his organization for violating certain New York business rules where we could get a judgment that would not only take away hundreds of millions of dollars from Trump, but also take away his right to do business in New York. So... It's good to be a Donald Trump lawyer if you're in the business of making money because uh, he's, they're spending a lot of hours into those cases. The oral argument went
1: on for about two hours, much longer than a typical oral argument. And I, I think our podcast could go on longer and longer because these are, these are great issues. But we're going to ask one unrelated question or, or related, but maybe not directly, to, to Rick Hassan, who has a new book coming out. Within days, and and again, the book is A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. You can find it on Amazon and bookstores all across the country. A great Valentine's Day present, or I guess it's not ready for Valentine's (laughs) Day, but almost. But tell us the big argument in the book so that listeners, when it comes out very shortly, are
0: are able to get their hands on it. Well, let me first say nothing says love better than pre-ordering a copy of a, a book on constitutional law. So it's never too early. You know every four years this country goes through a tremendous amount of anxiety and a an inordinate amount of litigation which i think derek and i have cornered the market on tracking the litigation going on around elections and this is not normal if you look at our peer countries advanced democracies around the world you know look at canada or australia or germany or whatever they're not fighting over their elections in the way we are there's not disputes and Part of the reason for that, I argue, is because our constitution is really old. It contains no affirmative right to vote. Go look for a right to vote in the constitution. You don't find an affirmative right to vote like you would find in the German or Canadian constitution. What you'd find is, if you're going to hold an election, don't discriminate on the basis of race or sex or age between 18 and 21, etc. And so the book argues that for three reasons, we should have a constitutional right to vote. To so it protects the political equality of all eligible voters. It could lessen the the voting wars because I would do things not just create that right to vote but also have universal voter registration conducted by the government as well as a National Voter ID Program. Uh, so it would get rid of most of the fights that we have about our elections. It would change how courts do balancing when they're confronted with challenges to voting rights. It would make election subversion harder. Back in 2000, the Supreme Court told us we have no right to vote for president. That's in Bush versus Gore. States can take that away anytime. And so I make the argument that we need this and we need a, a long-term movement for this. It went, if you look at the right to vote that women received, or at least no discrimination against women in voting, 1874, the Supreme Court says women are not protected by the 14th Amendment in terms of getting the right to vote. And it's not until 1920 that we get the passage of the 19th Amendment, and in those decades, There was a state-by-state movement. By the time we get to 1920 and the passage of the 19th Amendment, 30 states had amended their constitutions to include a right to vote. And so I think we need a popular movement. The last part of the book asks how we get there and what is in it for conservatives, because I think there is a lot to be in it for conservatives, especially as the Republican Party is changing uh, its composition and appealing to more working-class voters. The people are being disenfranchised by some of these laws could just as likely be Republican voters as Democratic voters. So that's the elevator pitch. It's the 19th floor. I'm going to get off. All right. Well, we always end
1: our, our, our podcast with two questions. Don, why don't you uh, talk with Derek about them, and then I'll ask uh, Rick the same two questions, and we'll wrap it up.
2: So, Derek, the first question is, is how did you get into election law? And now that you're you know, sort of an expert in this, and you sort of opine and write and research, what would you— tell your pre-election lawyer, pre-election law self, what would you tell yourself if you had to go back?
3: I kind of fell into this. I took an election law class in law school, and uh, I wrote a paper about it, and I submitted it for publication. It got published, and then I was invited to write a response, and I wrote another one, and then some ideas came from that. And I just sort of snowballed as I continue to write about these issues. So I, uh, you know, I didn't practice in this area. I was a general litigation associate, but I've been involved now in a, in a myriad ways of election administration, of recounts, of legislation at the federal state level. So it's been a, it's just sort of a journey from law school falling into this area and, and getting to, to see it from all angles. Um, but I think going back, I mean, if I were thinking about how I began or advice I might give to myself, I think is just. Um, that there is so much history and so much comparison and so much complexity in the United States that every state runs its elections systems a little bit differently. And maybe this is part of Rick's point about thinking about his book and about how complicated our elections are in the United States. Experiences that seem totally normal in one jurisdiction are totally bizarre in another. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have moved around the United States enough and, and administered elections in enough places to see what that looks like and to know uh, that, that there's a, a wide variety of of experiences that, that all come with costs and benefits. They all come with trade-offs. And I think opening my eyes to that earlier rather than sort of stumbling onto it over the course of my career would have been uh, illuminating.
2: So uh, during the course of that time researching and sort of following election law and election law developments, is there some one humorous event that has occurred that you could share with us?
3: Um, I'm trying to think about whether or not it's a humorous event or not. But I remember when we were uh, in the in the throes of one recount I was involved in and um, we had one precinct where the poor election official came back to us and he said it was a very well-run well, clean, well run and clean recount, but he came to us and just said this one precinct, uh, they counted twice as far as they could tell. And while they reported 738 ballots on election night, they had only 737 to give to us. And we spent um, hours trying to figure out manually tabulating, looking back at the rosters and everything. And uh, we did the very best we could, but we think we lost Uh, one ballot in the course of that uh, recount. Now, that felt very good to us because we counted 84,197 ballots. Um, To think that only one was somehow mishandled between Election Day and the end of the recount, I think, gave us a lot of great satisfaction. You know, you you obviously want to be exact, but it was was the one process. And those are a couple of numbers that I am rattling to you off the top of my head because they're now seared into my memory from that experience. (laughs)
2: That's a great one.
1: John? And Rick, same same questions to you. And one thing I will note, D- Derek's too young for this, but many lawyers, political scientists will say Bush v. Gore was a, a time when you came in, uh, really, really became interested in election law. You actually go back a little bit before that, not not many, many years, but you actually were one of the few people who were who were thinking about these things uh, maybe a few years before Bush v. Gore. But tell, us, tell us again how you got into this and what you would tell to your prior self.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is uh, it was also an accident. I uh, started off in the PhD program, political science at UCLA, studying Middle Eastern politics, found that to be quite depressing for whatever reason, and decided to make a change. I thought, you know, studying law would not keep me up at night. Little did I know about what would happen on January 6, 2021. But uh, so now I am literally kept up at night by our elections. But I decided to go to law school, and one of the courses I took was with Dan Lowenstein, who was one of the half dozen people in the country who was teaching an election law course at the time. With, with some materials that he had created just for his class, he published the first casebook in a hundred years—I uh, think about a hundred years—in election law. And soon thereafter, the Pildes-Sacraff-Carlin book came out. And the second, now the field has grown. The field did explode after Bush versus Gore. One of the things I would say is that the topic of election administration was not something that I covered in my class. And it was not in the original version of the Lowenstein casebook. You know, that was boring. In fact, and here's my funny story. Fred Wucher, who's a great election lawyer out here in California, I had him come speak to my class. I always have uh, get speakers. I have uh, Dean Logan and Bob Page coming to my election law class uh, the week after the primary this year, um, California primary. Um, Fred Wucher came into my class. This was in 1998, I think. And he started talking about how you do a recount. And he drew on the board an illustration of what we would today call a hanging chad. And the students were rolling their eyes like, this is the most boring thing that I can imagine. Like, I'm going to go to law school for this? Like, it's a computer paper that is partially perforated, and these little pieces come off. And, you know... Lo and behold, those students two years later were some of the only people in the country that were prepared to comment intelligently on what was going on in Florida in 2000.
1: Well, Rick Hassan and Derek Muller, thank you for joining us in the voting booth.
2: Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
4: Hi, my name is Michaela Fario. I'm a senior at Cornell University, and I had the privilege of being a part of the AEI Summer Honors Program this last summer. The AEI Summer Honors Program is a one-week seminar hosted by AEI in Washington, D.C., and I was a part of David French's course, American Unity and the Promise of Pluralism. By far, my favorite part of this experience was just all of the wonderful people that I had the opportunity to meet. AI does a great job of intentionally bringing together students from all across the ideological spectrum with diverse backgrounds. Everyone at AI, all the staff and students, intentionally seek to foster and cultivate freedom of expression and diversity of thought, both within and outside of the classroom. As I returned to my university campus, I found that this has just sparked in me this desire to collaborate with people with whom I disagree and to seek commonality in spaces where we often sort of lose sight of all that we share as people. If you're thinking about applying to some honors program, I would just encourage you to go for it. This has been just a life-changing experience and has shaped my own sort of academic journey in an incredibly meaningful way.
1: Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hung Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next